Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, today I have two guests. They're in the same lab. I have uh, Sonia Schrepfer. She works in the transplant and stem cell immunobiology, the TSI lab. Uh, she's a director there. She's a professor of surgery. Then we have uh, Professor Tobias Doiza. Uh, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, director of minimally invasive cardiac surgery, which is good because I'm sure no one wants any surgery to be anything but minimally invasive. So um, they're at University of California, San Francisco. And we're going to talk about CRISPR gene editing to uh, affect stem cells so that they're invisible to immune systems. Thank you for coming, both of you. How are you doing? Thank you for having us, Richard. Uh, very well, thank you. It's Great, a pleasure to you. be with you. Thank yeah, you. so I guess uh, we're looking at uh, transplants. And um, from what I know, anytime someone gets a transplant, they have to be immunosuppressed forever to varying degrees. So what's... Um, what is your work involved? What's your goal here? Yeah, so Richard, that's correct. So whenever you do a transplant, the immune system recognizes that transplant as foreign and the body immediately wants to reject that. So patients have to take um, uh, immunosuppressive um, agents, uh, meaning that um, you have to take medication your whole life that really alters your immune response. And then you have the high risk of getting infections or tumor development and other side effects. So the goal of our studies is really to understand transplant rejection and then to overcome that hurdle um, to really have transplants that you can transplant without medication into any patient. And when we think about that, we are now more recently working in the stem cell field rather than the solid organ transplantation field. So when a, um, a transplant is rejected, what does that look like? How long does it take and does it go through different types of rejection? So when we look at solid organ transplants, and I'm specifically involved with heart and lung transplants, these are organs that have you know, a good amount of immu- um, immunogenicity which means they require pretty high doses for immunosuppression. And if the immunosuppression goes down or the immune system gets activated more than it should, then the immune system attacks the organ. And there's an immune cell inflammation and the organ function becomes compromised. And this can actually happen pretty quickly. This can actually happen over the course of a few days and can have you know, very severe consequences. That's why we, in the solid organ transplant, always have to make sure that levels are adequate and uh, patients take their medications uh, regularly. Now, in the stem cell field, not as much is known about exactly what, how the cells would react, but it seems that the immune rejection is, if anything, even stronger against cell transplants. What do you mean? What, what role do the stem cells play in the recipient? So when we look at solid organ transplantation, that means we want to replace a failing organ with 
a new organ, but a complete whole organ. And the field of stem cell transplantation looks at using cell products to increase the function of the failing organ. So with the use of stem cell derived products, we hope to be able to treat a variety of different diseases for which the loss of functional cells is a hallmark. You mean instead of doing a transplant, you're culturing stem cells from a donor and injecting the stem cells instead of a, of a whole organ? Is that what you mean? So <clears throat> we believe we need to start from pluripotent stem cells. So we have a big source for cells, differentiate them into the specific cell type of need. And then, and this is very organ specific, transplant them either orthotopically into the organ or heterotopically to make up for the lost function. Okay, so an example is uh, if I have a damaged heart, you're going to induce pluripotency in my own cells or in a donor cells? I guess in donor cells, and then you're going to inject them into my heart to try to have my heart muscle regrow in the, in the places it's damaged, for instance? Yeah, so... If we start with a concept where a patient donates a cell, it gets reprogrammed to a pluripotent state, it gets expanded, it gets differentiated. It is a very long process, which is difficult to quality control and very time and cost intensive. So we don't believe that um, patient-tailored um, um, the stem cell approaches will be successful for treating a large patient population. We think that instead of autologous allogeneic cells need to be used in order to treat big uh, patient populations. Now, the allogeneic cells um, have the problem of immune rejection. That's why we work so diligently in understanding the rejection process and in engineering the cells to overcome these hurdles. All right, so just to be clear, autologous means my own cells. If you induce, um, let's say, my skin cells into pluripotency, and then you want to differentiate them into heart cells, would, would you do that? Would you try to do that, induce them, turn them into heart stem cells, inject them into my heart, and I would still reject them, my own cells? Well, you're, you're um, uh, touching on a very interesting topic. First of all, it is not as easy as that sounds, meaning the reprogramming has its own obstacles, hurdles, and problems. So even very experienced core labs sometimes fail to really reprogram and generate pluripotent stem cells from donated you know, patient cells. So it's actually a pretty complex uh, procedure. Will those cells later on when differentiated into a different cell type become immunogenic? Well, that's a very <clears throat> interesting question. And the answer, as we understand it, is they actually might. There's so many steps involved which can render autologous cells immunogenic, even if transplanted back into the same recipient as they were derived from. So Going through this long and cumbersome process doesn't guarantee you that the cells will be, um, won't be rejected. Have you tried anything very crude, let's say in a mouse? You take skin cells, 
Um, you culture them and you literally just inject them at the site of the heart. Trap them so that they can't move and see if there's an immunogenic response. You're not differentiating, you're not inducing, you're not doing any of that stuff, but maybe that's a very crude, I don't know, proof of concept. Yes, excellent point. So we have done that multiple times, obviously, and the result was that in many cases, we can generate cardiac cells that do not get rejected. Sometimes we actually end up with cell products that do get rejected because they acquire neoantigens during this long process of differentiation and manufacturing. Oh, really? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you able to, where do you think the, um, the, what do you think is causing the immune response? Is it the, um, the cell membrane, you know, the proteins and the structure of the cell membrane that really is the, uh, the main outward facing element of a cell that causes the immune response? Well, that's an excellent point. I don't think it is limited to the cell membrane because the cells present endogenous proteins via you know, MHC molecules also. So we have found that if we introduce uh, mutations, and they're easily introduced during these pretty tough procedures of reprogramming and differentiation, you end up with mutant proteins, and if they get presented, they can induce an immune response. I wonder how um, what lessons can be learned from from cancer and the niche construction that does, you know, because cancer is doing this. You know, if you have uh, liver cancer and it metastasizes to the pancreas, let's say, now you've got liver cells that are in a new niche, but they're still avoiding detection by the immune system. So they're doing something that is uh, allowing them to be not even the cell type that they're nestled in, you know, the pancreas, let's say, but still avoiding the immune system. That's excellent point. We look at cancer constantly because some cancers use mechanisms like camouflage mechanisms to make them evade the immune response. And some of the mechanisms cancers use, if we understand those, we can translate those into our field, uh, making them, uh, using them to make stem cells uh, immunosilent. Where's your, um, how's your theory evolving? What, what do you think is going to be some of the things that make this work? What are you testing right now? So we really um, try to learn rather than from the cancer biology, from fetal maternal tolerance, and that is during pregnancy, when the fetus um, has 50% of the proteins from the father, but the mother's immune system doesn't reject the fetus. So we tried, I think, the last 10 or 12 years to understand those molecules. Um, there are like 12 or 13 of them. And the fetus is either upregulating or downregulating those molecules to really be... Um, yeah, silent uh, in, and escape the immune rejection from the mother. And we know from pregnancies, when you have uh, miscarriages, that sometimes those molecules are failing and uh, the fetus is not able to have this tolerogenic environment around um, himself or herself. And then uh, the fetus gets rejected. Um, and we try to adapt those molecules and transfer that to the IPC technology and really generate um, stem cells and then differentiated cells 
um, that are hypoimmunogenic and don't get rejected. And these are surface proteins on the cells you're looking at? Yeah, so um, all of them are surface, or most of them are surface molecules, and they are either down-regulated or up-regulated. So you either have to do a knockout of that certain molecule or you overexp. And I think the challenging part the last years was really that you had to identify molecules that don't alter IPC pluripotency and still allow you to differentiate those IPCs into, for example, heart cells or liver cells. Um, and this is not easy because some of those molecules don't enable cell differentiation anymore. What's your best starting material that makes the, uh, you know, the induction process work the best? So we work, we do the gene modifications in pluripotent uh, stem cells. And we really work with different IPSCs from mouse, human, monkeys, pigs. Um, so it's really as soon as you have a pluripotent IPC line, you should be able to generate hypoimmunogenic IPSC. Well, uh, but again, what, what do you, in practice... Right now, what uh, what cell type candidate do you think is best that you've been able to, again, induce pluripotency and, and then differentiate it towards the cell type you want, heart or lung? So um, there are different discussions out which which is the best starter cell line. Should you lose like fibroblast to reprogram? But, you know, our skin is um, under the UV exposure all the time. So there are discussions you might have mutations if you use that as starter cell. Um, I think a blood draw with PPMCs is easy to do. Um, there are other techniques discussed like um, umbil umbilical cord line, uh, CD34 positive cells. It doesn't really uh, matter that much, Richard. Um, as soon as you have the iPSCs, you characterize them, you check them for pluripotency and mutations. And when you have a well-characterized iPSC line, you are good to go. So the starter material, there's a lot of discussion going on, but we work with different ones and haven't really um, agreed on one yet. You see that differently. But why, why, not, um, why not create iPSC cells from multiple you know, progenitors and then compare the structure, if you can, of their cell membranes to look for like the protein composition or the surface composition and see, hmm, this one is just full of uh, immunogenic... Uh, you know, stuff on the outer membrane, but this one's less so. Maybe this one will be easier to work with. That's a great idea, Richard. Um, the problem here is that the immunogenicity in the end is determined by the differentiated cell type you are going after. So for example, in our case, what we have, have published recently with the cardiomyocytes, your antigenicity of the cell is more defined by the cardiomyocyte um, rather than the iPSC source you used um, because those molecules change upon differentiation. So um, an iPSC line is thought to be less immunogenic, for example, than an antigen presenting cell like an endothelial cell in the heart. So it's really determined uh, what disease, what indication and cell type you are going for. So are you saying that the uh, the problem happens? So you you have a, uh, a pluripotent stem cell and then you have to put it next to in the context of the cells that it's eventually going to be with and those cells differentiate it. So if I'm going to inject something into the heart, you'll have a pluripotent set of stem cells, you'll inject them. And then in the, in the presence of the cardiomyocytes, that's when they differentiate or when do they? So you have to differentiate them before you go into any patient. So you can only um, 
put cells into the patient that are not pluripotent anymore. Otherwise, you have the risk of teratoma development, meaning that the pluripotent stem cells in a patient would form tumors and they would show cell types from each three um, germ layers. So it's really important that for iPSC technology, you're only aiming to go in with non-pluripotent differentiated cells. It can be a progenitor cell. It doesn't have to be the end mature cell you're aiming for, but um, going with a pluripotent stem cell is impossible for patients. Okay, well, what are you using as the primer to start the differentiation of your uh, stem cells? So that depends on the cell type again. So we did um, heart cells in the past, so smooth muscle cells, endothelial cells, cardiomyocytes. And for each of them, you have a different protocol. Um, basically, you are trying to give them the cytokines and nutrition they need for differentiation. Um, let's say um, endothelial cells need uh, VEGF, a growth factor. They just need um, to become endothelial cells. So it's really dependent on the cell type. Those protocols are all um, well published. Um, every lab is doing it a little bit different maybe, but the, the overall protocol, the basic protocol is the same for everyone. So our lab um, is not really a differentiation lab. So what we are doing, we are using the published protocols um, get the cell type we're aiming for and then study the immune rejection to that cell type. How many, you know, if you were to characterize it as a series of steps on the road to differentiation, mm -hmm. does it look like that? And, you know, how many steps are there and how long does it take, let's say, for a heart cell? Yeah, so, so you, can, um, dif um, you can check those cells doing differentiation if you're on the, um, on the right way to make, for example, cardiomyocytes. And really experts in the field, which are differentiation labs, they're doing that. Uh, we are using the, the published protocol. So what we do, we start the differentiation. And then, for example, for endothelial cells, after 14 days, you do have your final endothelial cell product. And what we do is then we characterize that product and we make sure that those are really endothelial cells. The purity is usually quite high. It's um, around like 95%. You can then really sort those cells that you have a pure endothelial cell population. And then you're ready to go um, to start the experiments, to inject them and um, yeah, understand the immune rejection to those cells. But have you ever looked at them during the process, you know, taken some at day seven, you know, day nine, et cetera, and looked at, let's say again, you know, the immunogens, the, the immune response to them at different stages, just to see maybe along the path, yeah. for some reason, it happens really early or it happens very late. And maybe you could do something about it then. Yeah, that's a great idea. We actually have done that a few years ago. And what we have seen is no matter... Um, if you have cells that are higher in their antigenicity or less, by the end of the day, they're all antigenic and get rejected. So the difference is really only a few days. For example, the endothelial cells get rejected quite fast, around day five. And then less antigenic cell in our hands got rejected, I think it was a week or up to 10 days. So there is a little bit variance here, but by the end, they're all antigenic, they're all allogenic. So there is uh, no such cell that doesn't get rejected by itself. So you have to help uh, nature and you have to make them hypoimmunogenic uh, to achieve long-term survival. Well, are you able to narrow it down to specific uh, membrane structures yeah. that are causing the immune response? Yeah. So um, as I said, the fetal maternal tolerance has certain molecules we checked um, 
no, almost all of them. And I think one of the key molecules is really the molecules that present intracellular peptides. And that is, as Toby mentioned earlier, the MHC class one molecule. So that's a molecule that is able to show to your immune system what's going on in the cell and basically can show to the immune system that the cell is um, allogenic, meaning from a different uh, person. Um, so if you knock out that molecule, basically there is no way for the cell to show that the cell is foreign anymore. So that actually is a major success um, to achieve hypoimmunogenicity. How is the cell communicating? Is it through extracellular vesicles that contain certain signaling molecules or is there another way? So the communication to the immune system is through the MHC class 1 molecule and the class 2. That's really the way for the cell to present itself and um, the way for the immune uh, system to recognize um, self and non-self. Um, the communication then for other um, aspects um, depends really on the differentiated cell type, like the cardiomyocyte has to engraft and couple with with the host cardiomyocytes and then function. So that communication is through, for example, calcium channels and other um, other molecules. But the immune system communication is mainly um, mainly regulated by the class one and class two molecules. The problem here, Richard, is that um, if you get rid of those class one, class two molecules, you basically imitate um, a viral infection we have in patients. So when you have a virus infection, um, the first thing that that viral loaded cell is doing is downregulating the class one. And that's why we do have innate immune cells like NK cells or macrophages, and they are cell, uh, sensing the missing self. And as soon as they recognize a cell with no class one, they would immediately start killing that cell. So that was kind of the complicated part of our research to understand how to protect the cells when they are class one, class two knockout from the NK cell and macrophage killing. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure. Um, so what's the goal? Is the goal for these uh these cells to come from a donor line or is it to come from the patient themselves? Like what, you know, when, when you can make this work, do you think it's going to, which one's going to be? So we, we believe that um, patient owned iPSCs um, is just not suitable um, because the process is long um, and it's very cost intensive. You need a lot of quality controls. And if you think about a patient with myocardial infarction who comes into the ER, that patient needs the stem cells kind of immediately. So you have no time to get cells out of that patient, reprogram them, differentiate them into cardiomyocytes, do all the necessary um, quality controls, and you have to scale up that you have enough cardiomyocytes for that patient. So there's really no time to do that. And it's really hard to do that for each patient. Um, so we believe that um, the goal should be off-the-shelf products. You have one well-characterized IPC line, for example, you use gene editing to make that cell line hypoimmunogenic, then you differentiate that into the cell you need, um, for example, um, for the myocardial infarction patient into cardiomyocytes. And then you have those cardiomyocytes off the shelf. So when the patient comes in, you have those cells ready to inject. And because they are hypoimmunogenic, they wouldn't get recognized from the patient's immune system. So you don't need additional medication to suppress the immune system. So the goal it's really, I think, to have this therapy for everyone, anywhere, at any time available. Well, the MHC, that's what the major histocompatibility complex. What, 
I've heard in families, and certainly within yourself, but within families, uh, you know, father, daughter, mother, son, etc., the MHC may be close enough or much closer than in just some random donor. Do you know how you might modulate the MHC to make it less of a problem? Well, that's an excellent question. And I would say there are studies out already looking at MHC-matched cell transplants. And most of the studies are in the preclinical work, but in the stage of uh, non-human primate research. And what's really interesting and fascinating is that even if you match the um, MHC complex, you will still get rejection because of uh, non-MHC antigens, which suddenly surface to becoming the most important immune antigens. And the immune response against those is actually pretty strong. So even if you were to do full MHC matching, you would not end up getting cells that would be tolerated. But what happens when you knocked out the MHC, like you said? Was it tolerated or no? It, so what we did um, <clears throat> in our, it's all preclinical still, but they were completely uh, tolerated. Hmm. I think, Richard, the, the thing here is the difference is there is no class one molecule at all. So really nothing um, gets presented at the cell surface. So there's really, you don't show the immune system that you are foreign. Um, there is no presentation whatsoever. It's a complete knockout. If you do a knockdown, we have seen that, I think, in 2009 when we did it the first time, the knockdown is not good enough. You still um, induce rejection. So you the key point here is that you have to have a knockout of the class 1 molecule. So that means probably that there's something else going on with it, you know, because if you're knocking it out completely, then you're not getting a response. But even if it's uh, matched, you're still getting a response. So something else about it is not just the matching, there's something else going on that's, uh, that's causing this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, those are, we think, the really minor histocompatibility antigens, the MIHAs. So you do have the class 1, class 2, and that induces a heavy immune response. However, if you have that matched, your MIHAs, the minor histocompatibility antigens, they're kicking in, they get presented, they get recognized, and they lead to rejection eventually. Is there a way to suppress those only, not the major, just the minors, and still have a functioning cell that doesn't have uh, you know, problems with virus attacks? Yeah, the, the point with virus attacks is really um, interesting, and we are working in that uh, field at the moment. Um, there are mice, um, those were the first uh, transgenic mice generated, I think, at all, and those mice are MHG class one lacking. It's a better to microglobulin knockout mouse. Um, it's now around for maybe 20 years. And those mice actually can clear viruses. So um, that fear of having a class one knockout and non not be able to clear viruses, um, I think the field has to look deeper into it. It might be um, that that risk is not as scary as uh, we think on first glance. Interesting. Yeah, I can see it's a very, very complicated problem. Just to make it more uh, more complicated with heart and lung, you know, has it been established that there's a, um, you know, a persist, persistent uh, microbiome that hangs out in the vicinity of these cells and these organs that would modulate how the organs function and maybe rejection? Yeah, the, Toby, maybe that's a question for you and the patients. I mean, um, that's really something. So we have never started the microbiome um, and those stem cells um, in the mice yet. And I also wonder whether this is very 
organ or cell type specific. There might be organs, I can imagine, where this might be more important than others. Um, and especially for the heart, and we're mainly focusing on the heart, it may not be that big of a factor, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just wonder. What about um, when you look at other transplants, you know, kidneys, uh, livers, etc.? Do they seem to have the same issues that, that you do with these organs, or are their issues different? Anything to be learned there? So there's some organs like the liver that's more tolerogenic per se. So not every cell type has the same immunogenicity. Liver transplant patients usually require lower levels of immunosuppression. So the transplantation of hepatocytes might even be easier to achieve than going after a cell type which is extremely immunogenic. Yeah, I just wonder. Okay, so where uh, where do you go from here? What uh, where do you think you can make headway? What are you working on right now to figure out? So now we're looking for the um, the best indications, the best diseases to go after initially, and some criteria are there need to be established protocols for differentiation of a specific cell type, um, and it needs to and you know. And also some diseases require the replacement of huge amounts of cells that have died. Other diseases just require, you know, fewer cells to regain function. So what we're doing right now is looking at different diseases. How many cells do we need? How established are the protocols? And for the different disease types, how much of a benefit would the hypoimmune platform bring? These are some of the criteria we use to um, identify, you know, the first indication for cell products. Yeah, one thing I forgot to ask is when you're doing a transplant, if there's existing same cell type in the recipient, does that make a worse immune response than if there's no more of those cells? You know, if you did, a, a, if you wanted to just beef up someone's heart that was damaged, you know, they had an infarction, um, is that more immunogenic than if you just did a heart transplant? Oh, Supposedly, that's a, there's none of those cells. Well, that's a great question. So I have to say, if you transplant a whole organ because of the three-dimensional structure, you have many cells that are not directly exposed to the bloodstream because you have a you know, fully built structure. If you transplant cells, initially, you, know, you have um, you know, all the individual cells you know, lying in this area, being injected into an area and being subject to immune recognition and rejection. So initially, I believe the overcoming rejection for cell transplants might be more difficult than for whole organs. Yeah, I thought it might have something to do with the fact that, you know, the person's uh, cells, or some of their cells are still there, and then these new cells are coming in. Uh, maybe there's just more of a... Uh, you know, a rejection because the existing cells now do look, there's an example of them and they do look uh, very different from the incoming cells as opposed to there being none of them and getting a whole new set of that cell type. I mean, uh, we chat for um, rejection and immune responses. Um, the immune system mainly looks for the presentation of four iron antigens presented to the class one. So their own cells, like for example, the cardiomyocytes, they're not inducing any immune stimulation. And um, then only the new cells you put in 
they have that four iron presentation, they would cause the immune rejection. So um, I think it doesn't matter that much where you put them in. However, in your example, when you put that into a patient with myocardial infarction, um, the immune system is quite activated. So you have a lot of inflammation um, in the heart due to the myocardial infarction itself. So I think we have to understand how that alters immune recognition and immune rejection of the system. Okay. Well, very good. What, um, what do you think is going to be possible over the next year and then maybe over the next five years with your research? What are some of the milestones that you're, you're looking to hit? So I'm hoping that we will see some soon and um, early successful translational, truly regenerative approaches. Too much has been done in the past uh, that has been you know, named stem cell research it has been, you know, over-promised, under-delivered because the technology wasn't ready, our knowledge wasn't really ready. So I think now in, in this new wave, I hope that we can have the first success somewhere in the field and during this learn and optimize how we produce cells, um, maybe identify additional hurdles. But once we have one cell product for a specific indication, that we can truly show is regenerative and works, I think it really opens us up for um, additional indication. Would it, would it be a success if you're able to uh, at least reduce the amount of immunosuppressive uh, drugs that are needed, or you want it to be an all or nothing? I mean, the goal, Richard, is really um, immunosuppression-free. Um, that's um, how the fetal maternal tolerance um, is working. Um, in those mice and humanized mice, uh, that is already achieved, but these are only mice models. So the future, I think, will tell, we will learn a lot about um, the molecules in translational models, as Toby said, and then really understand, um, is that modulation good enough um, and understand the, the different diseases where we are going after to really um, achieve immunosuppression free. I just thought of something very strange. So in the but in the in, in the model where um, you know you have the fetus, I mean the fetus are essentially is cordoned off from the mother except for you know the umbilical cord. So I mean it is in its own environment essentially, right? And there's only one you know one bridge to the fetus. Um, so it's not truly just inside the mother and free and you know having no immune problems. It's again it's shielded by the placenta, right? But basically, um, the placenta is allowing trafficking of the cells uh, from the fetus to the mother. So the mother later um, does have fetal cells in her bone marrow. So it's a chimerism uh, we see um, in mothers. Um, so it's not that the fetus is completely shielded from the mother's immune system. Also, antibodies um, can traffic through, um, to the fetus. So it's not a complete shielding. They're connected um, they, um, the mother's immune system is recognizing the four iron cells, the allogenic cells, but the immune system is basically not attacking. Uh, attacking. I always um, compared uh, with an army without weapons. So the immune system is recognizing that there is a four iron fetus, um, but it's not attacking the fetus. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's, it works better than I thought it did. Interesting. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to learn more about your research and to uh, you know read papers and and check out your work. 
Um, yeah, we do have a lab um, homepage where we show the recent work uh, we have published and we share where we give presentations. Um, we also, um, Toby's very involved in that. Um, he's doing a lot of teaching for um, high school students and whoever is interested um, in the topic. Um, and we also always welcome um, visitors to the lab. Um, we get a lot of emails where um, high school students or students are interested in just joining us for a few days. So we are always happy to, to host um, interested researcher students. Oh, so you host students for a while and then you reject them in the next set of students come to visit? I'm just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> well, the fact is, Richard, most of them are then with us. So we work with a team um, like many, many years together. So some of our team members are, they're not with Czech, but they stick with us uh, like since 12 years <laughs> or even longer already. <laughs> I was just kidding. You should yeah. tell all new people that come, you know, you have a few days, but if you don't perform, no. we'll reject you. Oh, no. <laughs> we always love to get um, new people involved. And the truth is, Richard, not everyone is really interested in immunology. So if you start to talk about T-cells and B-cells, um, you see pretty fast that most um, of the colleagues are not that interested into that field. Well, I just had to make a joke. <laughs> well, good. Well, Sonia and Toby, thank you for coming. And uh, it's been a really good call, very interesting. And uh, you have a very difficult task ahead of you, but... Uh, a really great one if you could make it work. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for having us. Thank Richard. you very much, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.